I kind of thought, well, you know, I got over that stuff. That was when I was just a kid. I, I'm powerful now. I have, I'm successful. I work at This American Life. And then I Googled complex PTSD and I found, oh, oh, oh no, I did, I'm not over it. <laughs> I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Stephanie Fu is a prolific and much awarded radio producer, formerly with the show Snap Judgment and This American Life. She left her job at This American Life to research and report her new book, What My Bones Know, a memoir of complex PTSD. Stephanie was abused and abandoned by her parents as a young person, a trauma she thought she'd recovered from with her successful career as proof, until a breakdown a few years ago led to her diagnosis, a diagnosis that felt to her like a terrible sentence. The book charts her journey to understanding complex PTSD and to inventing a kind of rubric for healing. We talked about the moment of her diagnosis, which came as a total shock, and the journey it initiated. Quick content warning, we don't get into the details of Stephanie's abuse here, but there is a brief mention of suicide, so be aware. 2017 was pretty hard for me. Um, I was at a point at which, at work, um, the content that I had to produce, you know, I had to talk to racists, like a, including one racist who told me, a white supremacist who told me that um, I seemed like a nice enough person over the phone, but um, during the race war, he wouldn't hesitate before shooting me in the head. Um, and I was, you know, ever since Trump got elected, our show had tried to pivot towards political content, which wasn't ever really my favorite in the first place, but all of a sudden I heard, I found myself you know, um, talking to people at the CDC about an increased likelihood of a damaging pandemic (laughs) or uh, talking to foreign service workers about how diplomats were quitting en masse and uh, diplomacy or democracy was collapsing. And and I just kind of started losing it, freaking out. Um, I started getting really depressed and anxious all the time. Um, I started crying on my way to work every day and like sobbing in my office for hours before I could do anything. Um, And it was sort of the first time that um, I hadn't been able to bury my feelings and anxieties with work because I could could no longer work. Um, And at a certain point, I went to my therapist and I was like, just tell me what my diagnosis is. Tell me what's wrong with me. And she said, you have complex PTSD, um, that, which I'd never heard of before. Um, I knew what PTSD was. I didn't know what complex P- PTSD was. And she said, well, you can get PTSD from a single traumatic event, but complex PTSD is when that traumatic event happens over and over and over hundreds of times over the course of years, usually by the people who are supposed to love you and take care of you. Um, it can happen in domestic abuse situations in by living in a war zone. And mine came from a really brutal uh, childhood filled with 
child abuse and neglect. Um, and I kind of thought, well, you know, I got over that stuff. That was when I was just a kid. I, I'm powerful now. I have, I'm successful. I work at This American Life. And then I Googled complex PTSD and I found, oh, oh, oh no, I did, I'm not over it. <laughs> all of, <laughs> all of these horrific symptoms uh, associated with complex PTSD. Um, like, you know, overwhelming loss of hope and despair or, um, tendency to be aggressive but unable to tolerate aggression um and like searching for a savior all of all of the time uh all of this i thought these were just like personality quirks and now it's like oh i'm i'm just textbook complex ptsd survivor uh or victim i guess at the time i thought um and i was horrified i was i was like oh i'm i'm a broken person and um, I tried to read up a little bit more about complex PTSD by buying these books. And all of them seemed to just sort of further pathologize me. And they didn't provide much help or hope. They were just kind of like, yeah, here's all the scientific ways in which your brain is completely fucked, you know. Um, and reading all of these really depressing articles and books, I just had this idea that if I ever could heal from this thing, if I could ever fix myself, I needed to write the first person book to give some people hope upon diagnosis. Um, according to her, she told me my diagnosis during our first session. Um, during our first session, I was 22 years old. Um, I was, you know, fairly new to therapy. Um, if she said that I had complex PTSD, I think I missed the complex part. And I I probably just kind of brushed her off like, yeah, sure, PTSD, whatever. That stuff's for like warriors or, you know, soldiers or something. That's kind of crazy, whatever. Um, and then she just didn't bring it up again for eight years. Um, which, yeah, I think in retrospect is problematic. <laughs> and uh, But she said, I, I asked her like, what? the hell <laughs> after i kind of googled this went down a rabbit hole got super depressed and she was like well when you were really happy i wanted to preserve that happiness i wanted you to be okay so i didn't want to bring up this like depressing diagnosis and when you weren't happy when you were really going through it i didn't want to make things worse but i think what wound up happening is being completely stigmatized and like losing those years of understanding why my brain works the way it does. Yeah, there's so much um, assumption. There's so much judgment placed in in that statement that she made on the diagnosis itself, as mm -hmm. if the diagnosis was something that you needed to be spared from, mm -hmm. um, which feels really counter <laughs> to counter to the spirit of trying to understand something and improve something and work with something, as opposed to concluding that the best thing you could do is just avoid or be spared the you know a, a true self understanding yeah as if it were like a death sentence or... yeah and you write a little in the book about and and you know you've just been talking a little bit about how the 
the diagnosis did feel like a, a sentencing of some kind, maybe not a death sentence, but it didn't feel like a good diagnosis to you. How did you, how did you handle that? And how did you work through that? It seems like a lot of what you did was turn, turn your kind of writing and reporting brain towards it. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, I, I eventually found a therapist who said that, um, the crux of complex PTSD, like the main symptom of it, is um, not believing that you are worthy of love. Um, and the <laughs> if you have somebody who doesn't believe that they're worthy of love, and you truly have somebody who one of the symptoms was listed is is prone to fits of despair or hopelessness, I don't think it's necessarily going to help them much if the first thing you you present to them is that they are aggressive, that they are problematic, that they have trouble maintaining relationships, that they are, you know, providing right. this <laughs> list of like deep freakish flaws that like confirm scientifically how unlovable they actually are. Um, so yeah, I don't... <laughs> I think that the way that we diagnose complex PTSD and the and, and the way that it's portrayed on the internet when you Google it right now is really unsettling and not okay and uh, detrimental to the actual act of healing. Um, but I, I didn't know that at the time. At the time, I was just kind of like, "Oh shit, I, I'm I'm a horrible person, and I can do two things: I can either just kill myself, or I can try to become a better person." I can try to 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 fix it. Um and you know, I had enough connections in my life where offing myself didn't seem like an like an option and I was too chicken anyway. Uh but I was like you know, let me do everything I can and apply my journalist brain to trying to figure out what I can do to heal if I can heal. Um, and so I just read every book that I could. I, I tried a jillion different therapies, whatever I could afford. I tried EMDR. I tried IFS. I tried um, meditation and grounding exercises and breath work and mushrooms. And um, yeah, and I, I, I tried it all. I wrote about it all. Um I quit my job to do all of this. I spent afternoons reading really depressing trauma books in a field of bluebells at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. Um, and some of it, I think, worked. I think there was a there was sort of a everything worked a little bit and sort of um, put me on a path to healing and being able to live more happily and healthily with complex PTSD. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm healed entirely. I don't think anybody's ever healed entirely because growth is a lifelong process. But I was able to come to a place where I feel happy and I feel that there are actually aspects of complex PTSD that um, can be empowering and that can make me, a, a for lack of a better term, quote-unquote wounded healer, um, a more empathetic, stronger, more uh, resilient person. Yeah. Tell me, uh, not to, it's funny, it feels sort of like leaping to the end, but since you brought it up, 
tell me some of the ways that you feel like you've learned that actually there are aspects of complex PTSD that feel like, that feel powerful in a positive way. Yeah. Well, I think the pandemic was really helpful for understanding that. Um, My therapist always told me that um, complex PTSD, PTSD in general, is is a social construct, actually, because in times of war, all the symptoms of PTSD are adaptations. They are what keep you alive. Hypervigilance, inability to trust people, um, you know, being being angry but not being able to tolerate aggression. Like all of it is really important if you are in a life or death situation. Um, And it's only in times of peace that that vigilance seems out of place and and uh, doesn't quite fit. So during the pandemic, it was kind of shocking. Uh, it, this was a, a moment where PTSD was an adaptation. And I found myself, um, while all of my friends, even my like my especially my sanest friends, like couldn't get out of bed and were, really overwhelmed. I was um, active. I was vigilant. I was. I wasn't hyper vigilant anymore. I was just vigilant. I was like able to protect my family. I went and bought a bunch of food um, uh, and masks, and and I was able to also work and be really like quite highly functional. Uh, strangely, because I think that I I was used to doing that my whole life, just kind of functioning even though my brain and body were under the impression that the world was going to collapse any minute. Um, and I was like, wow, this is kind of a superpower. Um, I, I later learned that people with complex PTSD in particular are really, really good at dissociation, um, which can be unhelpful sometimes if you're like losing time or not being able to be in the present or not able to feel intense feelings like joy or sadness, um, but can also be super helpful in terms of turning off your fear-based brain, that anxiety brain, and just going super functional, rational um, when dealing with really stressful situations. Um, So, you know, the fact that I can sit here and tell you about my like brutal childhood or my mental breakdown and just be like, hunky-dory, <laughs> that's dissociation <laughs> at work. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, you know? Right. Sometimes you really need it. Um, yeah. It's just a question of, can is, it, is, that, is that the only mode? <laughs> right, exactly. That you have access to. Yeah. yeah. And I've learned to turn it on and off better. That's a, that's a superpower for sure. Being yeah. able to feel like you have a little bit of agency mm-hmm. over something like that. Um, yeah, that's that's wild. You're not the only person that I've talked to who had that experience in the pandemic. A feeling like, oh, everything about me that was really maladaptive before is suddenly perfectly adaptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do I how do I situate that in my in my sense of identity? Um, it was it. It's interesting to see the way that circumstances 
produce our self-conception in some way. Yeah. I think it was very healing too being able to experience that because it made me feel less um, shame and freakishness. And that the fact that everyone else was experiencing PTSD symptoms, you know, um, made me again feel so much less shame over my own. Just understanding that like for for once the whole world understood what I go through. Well, right. And also that it's not that there's something specifically wrong with you but rather that there were that you underwent circumstances that make humans behave in or feel a certain way that right that everybody that is subject to trauma it's not like a it's not necessarily well i don't know actually that's something that i would want to talk to you about is how do you think about you write in the book about feeling confused about like what's my personality and what's my mm-hmm. circumstances and what's cptsd how do you how do you untangle those threads yeah, I at, at first really had trouble disentangling, you know, like drawing during meetings. You know what I mean? I love to doodle during meetings. And I was like, is that a form of dissociation? <laughs> is, you know, or, or um, not liking whatever, the Hershey's white chocolate with the chips in it, with the chocolate chips in it. Um, my mom really liked that. I don't like that. Is that, uh, do I not like it because my mom liked it? Do I not like it because I just didn't really like it? Like, are my tastes born of PTSD or my inclinations? Like, or, you know, I think I really struggled with, okay, I know that I've buried my trauma for a long time with work. So does that mean like I can't work anymore? Does my workaholism, is my workaholism a good thing or a bad thing? Because it gave me my whole life that I possess, but at the same time, it also prevented me from working on a lot of really important things over the years. And I worked to the detriment of my own health and relationships. So how do I place all of that? Um, And I think eventually what I came to settle on is I don't think it really matters. (laughs) Um, Just because I like something or don't like something, I don't really need to dissect. Like, I think I was pathologizing all of that, saying if it was born of trauma, it was a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter. (laughs) Like, so what if I like to draw during meetings? So what if it's a, a byproduct of dissociation? Is it hurting anybody? Is it hurting me? Seems like it's fine. Whatever. Right. Like it's okay um, to just avoid the white chocolate bar. Yeah. That's all it right. Doesn't <laughs> it doesn't matter. And then for the workaholism in particular, like, so, yes, it was a really unhealthy thing, but it doesn't mean that my relationship, like, I should be grateful in some ways that it's been able to give me what it's given me. And I think um, I still can get really in the zone and, and really want to work very hard, but I, I think I try to put some real boundaries and restrictions on that, like working a certain amount of hours a day. And then secondly, I also have been able to change the voice. I think the voice when I was at my worst with workaholism was if I didn't do something on time or if I didn't do something perfectly, I'd have a voice being like, you're a fucking idiot. Why did you mess up again? You moron. 
get back on it, you lazy asshole. <laughs> and um, I think that voice was still there too when I was um, uh, pathologizing that, like, oh, you, you've been working hard this whole time because you're broken, you're messed up at the head, you're crazy. And I think just being able to change that voice to be like, you know what? You're working really hard on this because you want it to be good. And like, let's go, baby. Let's go. (laughs) Um, Has been able, I've been able to harness that like grit or focus that my trauma gave me while also not submitting to the toxicity of it and and sort of turning it into a superpower or an adaptation rather than disability, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. How did writing this book factor into that process, into all of this work you're talking about of grappling with understanding and changing your relationship to this, this diagnosis and these, these, um, like parts of yourself? Yeah, I think, you know, I I really, I decided to write the book early on, but I didn't really write the book for two years after my diagnosis. I, fe- I spent most of that time really just focusing on healing, um, doing research, I guess. But I, I'm a lot of the writing that I was doing was totally stream of consciousness. Um, just lists of all the things I didn't like and just like I would come out of a therapist office and just go down to the cafe directly underneath and just cry and just like word vomit into it. Um, and I like the, and then by the time I started to actually write the book, I felt pretty much in a really, really good place. I felt significantly healed. Um, and so it didn't really feel like catharsis actually writing the book. It just kind of felt like work. <laughs> it kind of felt like taking all of the research and the diary entries and everything that I'd collected over the past two years and collating it, um, taking the source material and shaping it into a story. Um, but I think that the the response the book has been getting has been actually very healing to me. Um, because I've just gotten dozens and dozens of letters and messages from people saying like, I was in a place where I wasn't hopeful. You gave me more hope than I ever could have. You gave me real tools. Like you inspired my healing journey. I've started talking to my husband for the first time about my trauma from a chi- from my childhood. Um, like you saved my life, all of this. And I, I, um, it's been so validating because I wanted to make something to help people feel not alone, but everybody's responses back to me have been also like, wow, I'm, I'm not alone. Like so <laughs> many other people are suffering from this and all of the really horrific trauma that I suffered through during my childhood and my life has been given a purpose, a reason that to exist, which is to help guide others who have had to suffer through that, through it and sort of hold their hands and say, I know where you're coming from and let me show you how to get to where you're going. Um, Yeah, which is something I really struggled with at the beginning, of course, was like, why did this happen to me? Does this mean that I'm damaged goods? Does that this mean that I'm not of value to society anymore? And uh, I realized that, no, I don't want to say like, I'm grateful that this happened because 
Like it causes me suffering every day. I'm not super, I wish I didn't have it. Um, but um, I'm grateful that I found an outlet for it to, to be able to help others. Does it ever feel heavy to you, the way that people are responding to this book? Um, and how are you, I don't know, taking care of yourself during that? Um, the trauma dumps can be kind of harsh sometimes. Um, not harsh. It, it can be depressing sometimes. Um, um I would prefer when if people not gave me give me like super graphic long descriptions of their childhood abuse. Um, I know I impose that on everyone with my book, <laughs> but it's a small percentage of the book. Um, yeah, I, but, but for the most part, I think people are really actually super um, conscious of that and really kind and generous. And self-aware and the the messages have been really beautiful and I try to focus on the really positive ones. I'll go, I've been saving them in a little folder. I'll go back and reread them um, whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed or sort of low to sort of be like, look, I did a good thing. <laughs> I helped the person. Um, and I think w- what's been really surprising and nice about it is that um, you know, I think for many years I, I was afraid of sharing too much of my trauma because I was like, nobody wants to hold this. This is really heavy. It's like really uh, unpleasant. But in sharing it in the way that I did um, has made a lot of friends even feel closer to me they were I was surprised that a lot of friends hadn't known as much as they had I was like I've known you since I was nine how did you not know you were there and they were like I didn't understand the full extent um but it really has tied me closer to people vulnerability and I've actually had a close friend reach out and be like you know you showed me the power of vulnerability and I, I want to be vulnerable with you now. And I'm like, please do. Please do. Let's do this together. Let's hold each other's shit, man. Um, <laughs> and and so that's been really nice. I don't know. Yeah, that's really nice. That's, I mean, it, it, it um, I had, the, it, like, really differently. I also had the experience of people I'm really close to reading my book and reading things in my book that they were like, oh my God, I had no idea that that happened to you. Or I had no idea that you thought about that. Or I had no idea that you had this worry. I have this worry. And that it like can really highlight the ways in which we keep parts of ourselves from the people we love, not even intentionally sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the like the bridges that can be built between people after that kind of conscious putting yourself down on paper um it's really cool (laughs) yeah i mean i was i was also thinking that like it's a very uniquely selfish weird thing that we get to do is just like sort of monologue in somebody for eight hours or whatever it is about our our struggles (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, but I guess we've really craft. We've spent a lot of time crafting it into a narrative that they can engage with that winds up being whole and not sort of just grief dumping and hopeful and and vulnerable and beautiful i don't know i'm trying to just like grapple with that yeah i mean i think there's a distinction to be made between monologuing which often feels like the fear that people have when they're writing about their own lives and creating a piece of art or a piece of intellectual <laughs> intellectual work um from mm -hmm the stuff of that monologue, right? And the difference mm -hmm. between those two things often feels like the difference between, I don't know, maybe needing to worry that you're imposing on somebody versus having made something that is that is its own its own gift or its own entity for people to to ex experience on their own terms. Yeah, that's the big difference, right? Like they can turn me on and off. They have full agency over like when they get tired of my monologue and put it want to put it down or want to come back to it. That was um, that actually reminds me of something that I was excited to talk to you about, which is the like the role of revision in your of like kind of literal revision in a Google Doc, the role of revision in your um healing process. There was mm. I was so fascinated to learn that the the therapy or the therapist who it really wound up kind of starting to make a difference to you, um, you did something really unusual with him. Can you, can you explain what it was and talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we recorded all of our sessions and we, um, after each session, I went to the cafe underneath the office and I took the recording and uploaded it into software that transcribed it all. And then I went through the transcription and cleaned it all up. And then I put it into a Google Doc and shared it with Dr. Hom, my therapist. And both of us would then go through the Google Doc and make comments over every little thing. I'm not usually like a very good close reader, but he is. <laughs> and we would essentially do a very close reading through my entire therapy session. And he would say like, oh, I see that you're pulling away here. Oh, I see you're triggered here. Oh, why did you start half a sentence here and then drop it? You know? Um, and for me on my part, like the very first session, I saw that, you know, you can just go kind of go on a rant for a long time and not really know where you are. Um, but when it's on a page, you have to face up with that. And I saw like a whole like page and a half rant about god knows what just like my husband's job or whatever and i was like what is going on here why am i just going on and on like a roadrunner and dr ham commented yeah classic case of dissociation and i said oh what am i dissociated about but unlike in a regular conversation i could actually scroll up and see what happened right before that rant and i had talked about um my mom holding a knife to my neck and it was so clear that like I dissociated to say that sentence and just kind of got lost and went on <laughs> on a different direction um and I 
you know, if you had told me that, if you had been like, you dissociated because you had to bring this up, I would have been like, no, I didn't. But this was like pure hard evidence. I could not deny it. And so being faced with that, it was actually really helpful. Um, And I do think my experience with Google Docs, which, you know, as a radio producer, all you do is you are on Google Docs all the day, all all day long, like being edited and editing other people on it. And so I was really familiar and comfortable with this method. And so it was really nice. I, I enjoy being edited. So I, it was kind of like an editing my trauma out of my conversations with others. And so that's how I kind of learned how to be more present, how to listen to others better, um, how to understand what was happening with me at various points, how to be more curious. Um, yeah, it was, it was really weird, but I highly recommend Google Docs therapy for people. <laughs> I mean, I think the thing that felt so wild and exciting to me about that as a method is that so often when you're in a conversation with anyone, but certainly with a therapist where, where, you know, the conversation's emotional, it's so many things are happening kind of below the level of consciousness in the conversation. You're making choices about what to say based on emotions that you're like maybe half aware of, or you're kicking into a certain kind of conversational pattern or behavior based on triggers that you're not maybe quite aware of. And the idea of being able to just look and analyze even the the moment when there's an awkwardness between the between you and Dr. Han, um, where like then you go back and you're able to kind of dissect together in the transcript, oh, this is what happened here. This was the misunderstanding that happened here. Let's, mm-hmm. you know, now we now we can clarify that and we can bring that into our next conversation. Just felt like such a a radical technique for thinking about how you are relating to other people, much less relating to yourself. Yeah. I think it made me look at conflicts really differently. Usually we kind of look at conflict as being like, and that was all her fault or that was my fault. And like, that was because she was being bitch that day or whatever it is. And then like looking at it on the page, it is such a relational dance between two people. And it made me very curious about um, how conflicts happen and how it's so many just like sort of misunderstandings and stops and starts between two people of like being just not being seen um, so often and not being totally understood or sort sort of weird little hiccups just misreading like each other's cues like just micro misinterpretations mm-hmm. really micro things yeah and then i think it also was really helpful i mean everybody kind of want wants to know how they're perceived right mm-hmm. but it's really difficult to know how you're perceived even if you're listening to a conversation with somebody else but having a conversation with somebody else where somebody is telling you all the different ways that they're perceiving you can be really enlightening too to be like, oh, you know, I thought that I was toxic in these horrible big ways. Like I was a, this big jerk in in because I was just like inherently a, a, a dick or whatever. <laughs> um, but I didn't really know what those inherent dicky things were. And then looking at that, it really was seeing like, oh, there's this micro moment where I'm too afraid to like share myself 
And so I just go into myself or things like that, that made it so like, I, I see why I'm having trouble connecting with people, but also none of these things are like horrible flaws. You know what I mean? Right. It's not that there's some grand unifying f- terrible flaw, indelible flaw that is behind this 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 lack of connection or this trouble that you're having. It's all these sort of small moments of fear or confusion or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That blew my mind. I was so excited reading that part of the book <laughs> with the with the transcripts with Dr. Hom because it just felt like a, you know, in a way it felt like a um it made me think about, I don't know, conflicts in my own life differently, just seeing conflict or confusion broken down between the two of you so in such a granular way, but also um because I think in a way writing or, you know, producing radio a lot where if you're kind of trying to tell a story and craft a story in a conscious way, it feels that exercise feels to me like a mirror of that, of that same exercise of, okay, let's look at this thing that happened and let's look at it again and let's review it and revise it and come to a, come to some kind of coherent conclusion about it. Um, Mm. That kind of intervention and meaning making in human experience felt very, parallel to me with the your gesture of writing this book at all and you're thinking about the audience too right like how how will people hear this how will people perceive it right how did the experience of thinking about your audience change for this book I mean clearly you've spent a lot of time making writing and art and audio for for audiences you must have a really developed relationship with your imagined audience did that change for this no I couldn't get it out of my head but not in a bad way like I did I think for most of the book it was really helpful I was just like okay um with radio you you tell a scene and then you have an idea and then you come up with a scene and you come up with an idea so every idea that I wanted to get out in this book, like about dissociation or about, um, you know, being triggered or whatever. I knew that I had to craft scenes around that. And so I did. And I think there are ways in which like looking back or reading back that I created suspense or drama or whatever that were almost just instinctive just because this is what I've done for, you know, 10 years. Um, I think the one part of the book where that felt really wrong and hard was the first 50 pages which are really the the where all of my childhood traumas encapsulated cuz i was like how can i pick the instances of child abuse that i suffered that'll be most entertaining for the audience <laughs> which is a horrible thing to have to think about <laughs> Um, yeah, so I really struggled with that. God, yeah, that sounds awful. It sounds like the process of having to turn yourself into an object or an instrument, which is probably not the way you want to have to engage with um, traumatic memory. Yeah. Yeah, not really. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, you get edits on it and it's like, well, 
it feels like this is really dissociated. It feels like I can't feel where you are in this. Can you like put yourself more in in this moment, or can you use a different moment that you can like feel remember more vibrantly or whatever? Like at first, I was like, okay, I'm just gonna put in the most violent ones, and then that didn't quite work, and because I was also like, well. There's a lot of emotional abuse that was also really impactful. And then like no matter how many times I wrote about a lot of things, like I, I wasn't able to be emotional about it. And eventually, like you seen the book, I just kind of snapped almost at my editor and everybody. And I was like, How did I feel about it? I don't know how I fucking felt about it. Stop <laughs> asking me. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, I think that worked too. I just got in front of a <laughs> um Yeah. What are you what do you want to write about next? What do you want to write about now? Um, ideally, I would love for my next book to be maybe called The Case Against Therapy. Oh. Um, yeah. Which, you know, look, it, it's not against therapy in, in general, but it's more against like the case against the dogmatic psychotherapy that exists currently. Um, like talk therapy that has been proven to be pretty unhelpful generally for many 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 people um it is unhelpful for a lot of complex ptsd survivors um for survivors of war veterans um for um immigrant populations for older generations who just aren't really you know, familiar with the terms metacognition or PTSD and for whom those words don't mean anything and quite frankly don't need to mean anything uh, within their cultural understanding. Um, and more about how like, I'm thinking about like Mott Haven, you know, how therapy should instead try and treat symptoms in myriad creative ways um, of teaching people how to build their communities, whatever that community might be, how to, how to love, how to trust, how to be loved. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week.